Just bow your heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord to ask His blessing on the public preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray together. Well, Father, You say You promise that You are watching over Your Word to perform it. You say that your word will not return to you void without accomplishing all your good purposes for it. So Lord, would you make good on all these promises? You say that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray, would you give us a great appetite, even now, for your word. Make us hungry for the bread of life. And satisfy our souls. For Jesus' sake. Amen. When the Spirit of God descended on the apostles at Pentecost, they started speaking in tongues. Their voices, speaking foreign languages in Jerusalem, Galileans though they were, drew a crowd in the street outside the window. And that crowd asked an important question that I think all of us, in some way or another, are still asking today, what does this mean? What does this mean? We're going to try to answer that question this morning as we preach Acts 2, 1 through 41. Acts 2, verses 1 through 41, if you want to open up your Bibles with me to that passage or find it in the Pew Bible in the... Uh, seat in front of you, Acts 2, 1 through 41. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to structure our time together in God's Word. I'll structure the sermon based on eight things that we think Pentecost meant, and then we'll ask an important question after that. So follow along with me in God's Word as I read out loud for us, Acts 2, 1 through 41. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians? We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, Ah, they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a day. What did it mean? What did that mean? First, it means promise fulfilled. I gave you an outline because I got a lot of reasons, a lot of answers to that question. Sorry, man. There's just a lot of answers. Blame it on Peter. Peter's given you a lot of answers to this question. It means, first of all, promise fulfilled. Now, in the closest context, it's Jesus' promise of the Spirit from Acts 1 that's fulfilled. Jesus had said in Acts 1-5, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And Jesus had also told them, Luke 24-49, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, 
but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the Spirit poured on, out from on high actually recalls another promise, Isaiah 32, 15, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, Isaiah 32. So Peter alludes to that, but he doesn't really mention it specifically. Actually, Luke alludes to it in how he mentions the promise from Luke 24 and Acts 1. But the one that Peter cites in his sermon is Joel 2. This is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. What does this mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means Joel 2. God's promise to his people in Joel 2. Peter quotes Joel 2, 28-32, starting in Acts 2, 16, where God promised what he will do in the last days. Verse 17, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what God says. God says, I will do that. Again in verse 18, I will pour out my spirit. Again in verse 19, I will show wonders and signs. God's speaking. The effect of that outpouring is going to be supernatural revelation, prophecy, dreams, confirmed by outward signs and wonders. And what's more, God will do all this before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Peter relates Pentecost with the coming day of the Lord. This is preparation for the end times kind of stuff. This is salvation and judgment kind of stuff. Especially in Acts 2.21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be blessed, counseled, no, saved, saved. But whose name is the Lord's name in verse 21? On whose name must we call to be saved? Just God in particular, God in general? Any, any being that we want to conceive of as God? Verse 22, Jesus is the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. And Peter says God's signs and wonders from Joel 2, mentioned in Acts 2.19, were performed in Jesus' earthly ministry. In verse 22, look in your Bibles. Jesus' signs and wonders are continuing now in the prophetic tongues of Pentecost. And as we'll see, Jesus will extend his sign ministry on earth through his apostles in the book of Acts. But Peter's not done interpreting Joel 2. In verse 23, it was at the cross of this Jesus that his blood was shed under God's predestined, foreknown judgment for our sin. It was there that the sun was turned to darkness at midday as Jesus hung, bleeding and dying on the cross. God had planned from eternity past to save us from the power and penalty of our sins against Him by sending His eternal Son from heaven to take on human flesh on the earth so that He could be crucified as a substitute penalty our sins deserve. What Jesus' death saved us from 
was God's wrath in hell for all eternity for our rebellion against his eternal righteousness, love, and law. And to prove that Jesus died for no sin of his own, God raised him from the dead bodily. That doesn't happen every day. Jesus' sinlessness is the reason death could not hold him down. Because death can have no claim on one who is sinless. Because death is the penalty for sin. Pentecost happens then. The outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2 happens not just in connection with Jesus' ministry and suffering and death, but by virtue of it. Especially of his resurrection and ascension. It's because Jesus came, lived sinlessly as a man, died our penalty for our sin, rose again, ascended to God's right hand bodily, It's because of all that that he is the one, notice, who first receives the Spirit and then pours him out on us. The promise of the outpouring of the Spirit in Joel 2 is first to Jesus, then to us. Look there in your Bibles in Acts 2.33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received the Father from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's about the risen Christ. He, the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Translation, you don't get the Spirit apart from faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care what language you think you're speaking. Jesus pours out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus received the promise of the Spirit when he was exalted to God's right hand at the ascension, the promise of the Spirit is only mediated to us through faith in the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Because all God's promises, all God's promises, are only yes in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 You only have anything from God the Father through Jesus the Son, as your substitute sacrifice and the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Second, so Pentecost means promise fulfilled, Joel 2. Second, it means Christ crowned, Christ crowned. It is crowned to rule and to bless. If the Spirit is being poured out in fulfillment of God's promise through Joel, then Jesus really is risen from the dead, ascended to God's right hand, enthroned as the King of God's kingdom. That's what it means. It's happened. The Messiah has come and done his work. The resurrection of the Christ, Peter says, was foretold by David in Psalm 16. Look there in verse 25. Peter quotes David's confidence that God will not let him see corruption or decay in the grave. But David did, in fact, die. So was his confidence misplaced? No. His confidence was not for himself. It was for the Messiah that David prefigured as king and prophesied about in Psalm 16. Peter says David spoke prophetically about Jesus' resurrection. God had promised David a son who would reign forever on David's throne. 
2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant. Jesus is that son of David in Acts 2.31. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection, uh, not of himself, not of David, but of the Christ who was to come. That he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh, Christ's body, see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What this means is that in Jesus' resurrection and ascension, God has provided once for all an eternal son of David to reign on the throne of God's kingdom forever. His kingdom is inaugurated. It has begun with the resurrection, ascension, and the seating of Jesus on the throne of the kingdom at God's right hand. to reign over all peoples for all eternity. And Peter says, look, if the Spirit is being poured out, then the Christ has already been crowned king. That's what it means. He's already reigning. Because he couldn't pour that out unless he was. That's his prerogative. He has to receive it first. Third, Pentecost means Christ proclaimed. Christ Proclaimed. Pentecost is about the outpouring of the Spirit. But notice, who is Peter's sermon about? It's not about the seeking of the Spirit for the gift of tongues or for dynamic worship in the Spirit. Peter preaches a sermon about the risen and ascended Jesus as giver of the Spirit at the very moment that the Spirit was being given. What does this mean? It doesn't simply mean the Spirit. It means Jesus for Peter. He calls you in verse 38 at the end of his sermon on Psalm 16 and Joel 2, to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins under His blood and righteousness. And that's how you're going to receive the Spirit of God into your heart. Jesus is how you receive the Spirit. When the Spirit is poured out, Jesus is preached. When the Spirit is poured out, Jesus is preached. Frederick Bruner put it this way, the meaning of Pentecost is to be found not in the interior spiritual life of the disciples, nor even in the gift of the Holy Spirit, but in the preaching of Jesus Christ. In the center of Luke's attention at Pentecost is not spiritual ecstasy, but a Christian Sermon. The ministry of the Spirit is Christocentricity, Christ centeredness. That's the ministry of the Spirit. And the power of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the power to be Christocentric. Hey man, if you think you're filled with the Spirit, and you're not talking about Jesus very much, 
I don't know which spirit you're being filled with. That's what Peter would say to you from Scripture. Peter's not preaching a sermon simply about the experience of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching a sermon about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that is implied by the outpouring of the Spirit. If you don't make much of Jesus, you're not filled with the Spirit of Jesus. Because Jesus himself said, John 16, 14, He, the Spirit, will glorify me. So if what you're looking for in a church is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of God's people, then do not look for a church that is speaking in tongues or a church that is known for pulsating music or physical healings or any of that stuff. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit in John 16, 14, He will glorify me. That is exactly what you see the Spirit doing through Peter here in Acts when the Spirit comes and fills the disciples. Peter preaches a Christ-centered sermon at the outpouring of the Spirit because the Spirit focuses your attention not on your experience of the Spirit, but on the Christ who pours that Spirit out. All this is consistent with what Jesus said would be the purpose of the Spirit's outpouring, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will not simply witness to your experience of the Spirit. You will witness to me, Jesus says, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose of testifying about Jesus. The most Spirit-filled people are not the ones who are always talking about their experience of being filled with the Spirit. The most Spirit-filled people are the ones who testify most often and most powerfully to the reality and resurrection of Jesus Christ with their own words and their own obedience in bearing the fruit of of the Spirit in their lives and words. Because that is what the Spirit empowers us to do. He empowers us to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's also consistent with what actually happened at Pentecost. When the Spirit was poured out and the saints were speaking in tongues, what were they talking about? In the words of the crowd that gathered in the street, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Those mighty works are all pointing to and centering on Jesus. They were all fulfilled in Him. So again, if you're looking for a spiritual church with a capital S, don't look at how much they talk about the Spirit or their experience of the Spirit or their closeness to the Spirit or what the Spirit has said to them or the word they got from the Spirit. Look at how much they talk about Jesus and look like Jesus. Fourth, What does Pentecost mean? Forgiveness procured. Forgiveness procured. In verse 38, when the crowds heard Peter's Christ-centered sermon on the outpouring of the Spirit, they were cut to the heart. And no wonder. Peter had said to them in verse 23, this Jesus you crucified. Mm. That ain't seeker-sensitive, is it? (laughs) 
That's, that's willingness to offend. That's, hey, you're guilty. I know the Romans held the hammer that drove the nails. But your sin did this. Why was this necessary? Because you sinned. That's why. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And again in verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Whoa. You're telling me the one we crucified is the risen and ascended Lord who just poured all this out in power? Now we're now that's that's double trouble. Now we didn't just crucify an innocent man, we crucified it, the King of Kings, who is raised to the throne of God's glory in heaven. No wonder they're cut to the heart. Now we're really in trouble. They're also cut to the heart because many of them, in verse 13, were mocking the believers who were speaking in tongues as if they were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. God used Peter's sermon to convince them otherwise. So now they ask in verse 38, what do we do? Now what? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What a gracious, needed, welcome, relieving word that is. Jesus was crucified, dead, buried, risen, and now ascended in order to procure the forgiveness of your sins. Even the sins of those who nailed Jesus to the cross by their rebellion. But that raises a question, does it not? What is sin? Why does sin matter? Why must I be forgiven? Forgiven for what? Who must forgive me? Who have I sinned against? Friends, these questions take us to the heart of God's message to us in the Bible. God simply is The first line of the first book of the Bible starts out, in the beginning, God created. This book does not play by your rules. This book assumes something that you still question. God is. God was before you were. And the only reason you are is that God is. In the beginning, God created. And this book does not act or feel as if it owes you an explanation for that statement. It just says it. You want God? You take him on his terms, not yours. That's how he starts his whole communication to you. In the beginning, God Take it or leave it. He doesn't owe you an answer for his pre-existence before all time. He simply is. He needs no defense or argument for his existence. And deep down, you know it. 
or else you wouldn't feel guilty about all the sins you've committed. In fact, he himself is the argument, reason, defense, and ground of all reality. He doesn't need an argument for his existence. You need an argument for yours, and he is that argument. And he's the one you've been rebelling against by trying to figure out right and wrong on your own all this time. Everything else is because God is. God is our holy creator. He created us and all things in heaven and on earth, including us. And he created humanity in his own image, specially to enjoy him, to love him, to serve him, to reflect him, to be blessed by him forever and ever because he's good. He's kind. Where did he create us? In a garden. He put us in a garden. That's nice. It's a nice place. He didn't put us in a desert. He put us in a garden full of food. And he gave us authority to name animals and to expand that garden globally. That's good. That's kind. But we sinned against his law and his love by seeking to know good and evil out from under his authority over us. And we wanted to exercise authority without his authority. That's what it meant for us to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to experience good and evil for ourselves out from under God's protection and law and authority. And that rebellion against God is the essence of sin. That's what sin is, rebellion against God. It's being true to yourself, even if that means being false to God. That's sin. And our culture revels in it. That's wrong. And the penalty for our rebellion against an infinitely kind and righteous God who never did us wrong is eternal conscious torment in hell. You sin against an eternally righteous, good, generous, sovereign, gracious, compassionate God and you will suffer for it for all eternity, and that's righteous and just and commensurate. Just like if you sin against me, it's not that big a deal, but if, if you break into my house, maybe not that big a deal. If you break into the White House, big, 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 big deal. It counts who you sin against. We have all sinned against God, and so the penalty is stiffer. But God sent Jesus, His only begotten Son, the second person of the divine trinity, His prized possession, His Son, to live the obedient life we should have lived sinlessly, to die the death we deserve to die in our place for our sins as our substitute sacrifice. So that if we turn from our sins, if we repent, and if we trust not in our own goodness, but wholly in Jesus' righteousness for us, then we can be saved from God's judicial anger against us, and we can be reconciled to the very God who created us for his own pleasure and glory, the very God we sinned and rebelled against. That's the only way. Because only an infinite, righteous, holy God-man, Christ Jesus, could take your infinite, righteous wrath from God in your place. Only he could exhaust that in, in himself. So Pentecost is one great outward confirmation of that message. It confirms that God raised Jesus from the dead, accepted him back at his right hand, 
in the ascension, accepted the penalty that he paid for us in our place for our sins. He accepted that and gave Jesus the Spirit as a result to distribute to his trusting people. And that Spirit living in us is not only the way we proclaim Christ, it's the way we understand our relationship to God and Jesus in the first place. The Spirit is the same Spirit Jesus said would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. And the outward evidence of Pentecost itself does, in fact, warn that judgment is coming on all who don't believe. Now, how is that so? How in the world does Pentecost testify to coming judgment? Fifth, judgment pronounced. Pentecost pronounces judgment precisely by the phenomena of speaking in tongues. Tongues here do function as the outward evidence of the Spirit's power and presence to glorify and testify to Jesus. That's true. Don't get me wrong. These saints are filled with the Spirit to speak of God's mighty works in Christ in recognizable foreign languages that foreign peoples do actually recognize, understand, and they're saved by hearing that preaching. When they began speaking in these world languages, it drew a crowd. Verse 6, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at at this sound, not the sound of the mighty rushing wind, at the sound of the speaking in tongues, them hearing their own language while they're in Jerusalem and not in Medo-Persia, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. The sound of multitude came together. They were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they asked in verse 8, how is it that we hear each one of us in our native language? Now for them, it becomes clear by verse 8 that this sign of tongues is a sign of salvation for them. That's true. They are hearing in their own language what God has done in Christ to provide them with forgiveness of their sins. Praise God. For them, tongues functions evangelistically, missionally for their salvation. But for unbelieving Jews or any other unbelievers who did not know these languages or simply did not repent of their making fun of them as if they were drunk, when you hear people speak in a language you don't understand, it disables communication and makes functioning in a culture impossible. If I can't say, donde esta el baño, south of the border, and I can't understand the answer to that question, I'm up the creek. Now in Isaiah 28, 11, God warned his people that because they had rejected his word in their own language, in Hebrew, he would speak to them in a language they would not understand, and he would not give them an interpreter. In other words, he would send them into exile into a foreign country that did not speak their language but spoke a foreign language. Isaiah 28 foretells God's judgment of exile on Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel. He tells them, Isaiah 28, 7, that priest and prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. That's a judgment image. You're going to reel. You're going to be drunk with the wrath of God. His judgment on your rebellion against him. That's to the Old Testament Jews. But if the priests and prophets can't teach straight, they're the teachers of Israel. If they can't hear God's word rightly, then in Isaiah 28, 9, to whom will he teach knowledge? Who will God teach knowledge to if the priests are drunk on God's wrath and they don't want to hear it anyway? Isaiah 28, 11 is the answer. For by people of strange lips 
And with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they will not hear. In other words, since unbelieving Israel would not listen when God preached the gospel to them in their own language, God would send them into exile to hear everyone speak in a language no Israelite could understand. Hearing God talk to you in an untranslated foreign language is not a blessing, it's a judgment. Now, lest you think that is simply an Old Testament irrelevant doctrine, may I remind you that Paul quotes Isaiah 28 in 1 Corinthians 14 when he's saying why it's better to speak an edifying word that other people can understand instead of speaking in tongues at church. That's why. Especially if you don't have an interpreter. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 23, be infants in evil, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, but in your thinking be mature. Well, how should I be mature in my thinking, Paul, about corporate worship? Because tongue seems awesome. And I want to be known as someone who speaks in tongues. Because that looks like it's maturity and authenticity and power and intimacy with Christ and the Spirit. Well, Paul says, well, in the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord, Isaiah 28. Thus, tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Tongues isn't the way you prove how mature you are to other Christians. Tongues is a way for the truth of the message of the gospel to be obscured and hidden from people who actually need to hear it, but they don't understand that language. In other words, when God speaks to you in a foreign tongue you don't understand, it's because of unbelief. And it's a sign of judgment on unbelief. That's also how Sinclair Ferguson takes it in his book on the Holy Spirit. What this means, in turn, is that any modern attempt to mimic the tongues of Pentecost without translation is completely misguided. Maybe well-intentioned, but misguided. It is a sign not of spiritual maturity or intimacy with God. In fact, if untranslated tongues function today as they did in Scripture, then as a sign of judgment, not blessing. And all this fits with where Acts is going in the next 26 chapters. What happens to the unbelieving Jews? See, they, while the gospel is still in Jerusalem, they reject Peter, James, and Stephen's preaching. They try to kill Paul when he's converted. They, they martyr Stephen. And by Acts 28, 26, Paul is quoting Isaiah 6 to the unbelieving Jews in Rome Go to this people, Israel, and say what? You will indeed hear, but never understand. As if you were speaking a foreign language. Speaking untranslated tongues in the church is not a blessing. It's a warning. Sixth, repentance required. Repentance required. This is also what Pentecost means. Peter ends his whole Pentecost sermon on Jesus by commanding his hearers, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Repent. 
Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For Peter, Pentecost preaches the exaltation and royal rule of Jesus. And that means we have to repent of ruling ourselves in all the ways that have excused our own sins. In repentance, we turn away from our sins and our self-rule, away from our self-reliance before God, away from relying our own perceived goodness to justify ourselves before God and outweigh our perceived badness. But in that same turning motion, we turn to Jesus in faith. We turn to relying on his perfect obedience to God's law in our place and on his complete endurance of God's curse for our disobedience in our place. And what that means in turn is that, we re that repentance is not penance. Repentance does not mean relying on our own self-punishment in hopes of avoiding God's judgment. That's not what repenting is. And in fact, your repentance itself cannot be good enough to save you. What you're repenting from is trusting even in your own repentance and trusting completely in the obedience of Jesus Christ, his obedience to the law and his endurance of the curse for your disobedience. So repentance means relying on God's punishment of Jesus in our place, not on our own punishment of ourselves, so that we no longer see punishing ourselves as either necessary or sufficient. But make no mistake, repentance is required in order to experience the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Every one of us has to turn from complaining against God's justice and wrath as if it were expecting too much or were unfair. And instead, we need to admit we deserve it. We have to turn from the pleasures of sin to finding our pleasures at God's right hand in His Son, Jesus Christ. We turn from trusting in favorable comparisons with others. Oh, I didn't cheat on my wife. Oh, I didn't steal. Oh, I didn't lie. Oh, I'm not a murderer. And we trust instead in how Jesus has earned for us all the righteousness we will ever need for right standing with God. And we turn from identifying with the sins of the world to identifying with Jesus in baptism and with his people in local church membership. Which leads to our seventh point. Identification expected. That's what Pentecost means. Identification expected. Identification with Jesus in baptism and with the church in membership. Christian baptism is the way we go public with our faith in Jesus Christ. By being submerged under the water and coming up out of the water, we identify ourselves publicly with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to new life. This is for every Christian. Verse 38, repent and believe, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every repentant believer should be baptized. And yet, in verse 39, only repentant believers should be baptized. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. You see how each successive phrase in that verse qualifies the former phrase? It's for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. Now this is often used as a pretext for infant baptism. You and your children but it actually proves the opposite. The promise is only for everyone whom the Lord calls, whether far off or in your family. The doctrine of election, God's sovereign choice to save whomever he will save by his sovereign mercy alone, because it's his to give, and he owes it to no one, not me, not you. This doctrine of election qualifies the words you, your children, and all those who are far off. 
The promise is for whomever the Lord calls to himself among any of those groups. And if the Lord has called you, then baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus is the way you respond to that call publicly. This is part of what it means for us to be a Baptist church. The way you show that you are saved, the way you respond to the gospel message is not by walking an aisle, not by kneeling at an altar, not even by praying a prayer. The way you respond is by turning from sin and self, repenting, and being baptized in front of people to identify yourself publicly with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this is consistent with the Great Commission. Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But then, if we are identified with Jesus, then we should be identified with his physical body, the visible church, in membership. Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added. Added to what? Added to the existing number of disciples, the 120 or so who started out together in Acts. How were they added? How did they know they were added? It's not clear what the mechanism was, but Luke knew how many were added. The number is somehow counted, probably recorded. To record this number in Scripture, it was somehow recorded and made known by the local church. This is a real number. It's a round number, just as we'd expect in many ancient texts, but it is a number. These people became God's people with God's existing people. They formerly identified with sin, the world, the flesh. Now they're numbered among the church. It's clear they've switched sides, changed loyalties. This is why we're careful in how we count who's in the local church and who's not. Even when 3,000 people were converted and baptized in one day, the church somehow took the effort to at least approximate and record how many souls were taken into church at Jerusalem. I mean, you talk about a long members meeting. <laughs> When these converts were baptized into Christ, they were at the same time baptized into Christ's body, the visible church. Acts doesn't know of another way of becoming a Christian than by being baptized and added to the Lord's number visibly in the visible local church. You can't be a Christian in Acts and not be a member of a local church. That's just how it happened. Bam, bam. You don't just get baptized into Christ. You get baptized into a church. What this means is that we should keep Christian baptism and local church membership closely connected. Now look, some of you have experienced this from me, pastorally, with your grown children. This is why we don't baptize our young converts out of this church when they're moving away to college or for a job. We encourage them to be baptized into the church they intend to join once they've moved so that they keep baptism and local church membership together. You don't get baptized out of a church. You get baptized into a church. Now, some people have doubted the possibility of baptizing 3,000 people in one day around Jerusalem. That's a lot of baptisms. But Craig Keener notes that archaeologists have excavated 34 cisterns or reservoirs near the Temple Mount with a capacity of up to 8,000 to 12,000 cubic meters. That's a big reservoir, and that's a lot of them. Tradition also reports ritual immersions 
in the massive pool of Siloam. So with a total of 150 known immersion pools in Jerusalem, the immersion of 3,000 persons in the span of a few hours is the last concern we should have with this text. There's plenty of people and plenty of water to get baptized in Jerusalem. We might also ask what could be wrong with modern mass baptisms upon a bare confession of faith when that's exactly how the church started. What's wrong with it? They baptized 3,000 in one day. What are we complaining about when it happens today like that? Well, we should remember that Pentecost was only 50 days after Passover, so this is less than two months after Jesus himself was crucified for treason as a so-called pretender to the throne of either Herod or Caesar. At that time, merely to confess Jesus as Lord then was to risk your life and your vocation. The Jews in Jerusalem would have wanted to kill you just like they killed the Jesus that you confessed in baptism. So a bare profession of faith in Acts 2 risks and therefore means far more than a bare profession of faith today, especially even outside the Bible Belt. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a church planting pastor in Iraq and we see 3,000 conversions to Jesus, 3,000 verbal professions and baptisms in one day, I'm doing it, and I'm taking them into the church. You know why? Because they're going to get disowned by their Muslim families, and they might have a price on their head. So verbal profession there means way more than it means in Elgin. And especially more than it means in Kansas. And few if, any of the, few, if any, of these baptismal candidates in Jerusalem were second-generation Christians hoping to make mom and dad proud. Oh, you're a Christian? I want to be a Christian, too. Oh, you're taking the cup and the juice. I want some cup and juice. I'm hungry. These were the first in their families, most likely, to profess loyalty to Jesus as Lord and King, even though it's making the Jews angry and the Romans suspicious. Professing Jesus publicly then was to risk being disowned by your family, disbarred from your pagan trade union, which was counting on its patron saint for the blessing of their work, and maybe even crucified like Jesus had been just seven weeks earlier. Today in the global West, still in the afterglow of a fading Judeo-Christian culture and with children being brought up in Christian homes, it can be a matter of prudence to wait and see some good fruit of repentance and faith before baptizing a young or new convert, especially from a Christian home. We got a lot of kids in this congregation. Do not expect me to baptize them when they're seven just because they came home with a colored picture of Jesus. That's not how it should work today. Baptism is the church's public affirmation that a person really is united to Christ in his death and resurrection. It's one of the most visible ways we churches encourage a believer to experience assurance. So in our cultural moment, which is very different than first century Jerusalem, we want to be wise in how and when we administer baptism so we don't give premature professors of Jesus the wrong idea. We don't want to give them the sign of the new covenant when they don't know its reality in their own hearts and we can't tell why they want that sign, whether it's to please mom and dad, to fit in with their Sunday school class, or just because it seems cool. Eighth, global mission. Global mission. 
It's another thing that, the, that Pentecost means. Acts 2, 5 through 11 mentions about 15 countries or cities, introduces that list in, fi- in verse 5 with the phrase, every nation under heaven. So these are mostly Jews living in different parts of the near Mediterranean world, but they're also proselytes, Gentiles who had converted to religious Judaism. These are not people who were in the room when Pentecost happened. These were people who were standing outside, passing by, hearing the prophecy in tongues from the street through the open-air windows. The outpouring of the Spirit drew a crowd in Acts in verse 6. But even though these are all Jews or proselytes to Judaism, they represent the beginning of their own nations hearing the gospel in their own languages. Acts 2 foreshadows the spread of the gospel to all nations that is going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. This is a microcosm. Pentecost is a microcosm of Acts 3 through 28. Just as God confused the languages of people at the Tower of Babel and scattered them because they would not scatter in obedience to his command, so here God is reversing that confusion of languages and giving people from all over the world a taste of the gospel in their own native tongue. But as we can look back to Babel, so we can also look forward in Acts here. The nations have come to the church in Jerusalem, but soon the church in Jerusalem is going to be scattered to take the gospel to the nations. Friends, the church does not exist simply for its own sake. The church exists for the spread of Jesus' truth, grace, and glory to the ends of the earth. The cross-cultural witness of the church here at Pentecost foretells how the church is supposed to go and make disciples of all the nations. We will either give, send, or go ourselves in that mission. But doing nothing is not an option. Every church, every Christian has a responsibility to contribute to the global spread of the gospel. We, as a church, want to be growing in how much of our budget we give to missions. We want to be growing in our willingness, ability, and faithfulness to raise up other Christian workers, both pastors and missionaries, from among our own number. And we want to partner with church planters and oversee resources and support them and those who train workers in other parts of the world. A healthy church is not merely a doctrinally sound church or a peaceful church or a well-ordered church or even a gospel preaching church. It's not less than any of those things, but it's more. A healthy church, a mature church, is an outward-looking church. We look outward to see who we can speak the gospel to, where we can plant churches, how we can make more disciples, how we can train and send more pastors and missionaries, and how we ourselves individually can be a part of that work. That is our responsibility together. That's our joy. That's our aim and goal. The church is the only institution under heaven tasked with the Great Commission. That's not the government's job or the parachurch's job. It's not the job even of the seminary or the schools. It's the church's responsibility to spread the gospel through our personal local evangelism, through our Lord's Day preaching, through our weekly Bible studies, through stateside and international missions and training initiatives. There is no plan B. The church is God's evangelism and missions program. Now, many in the global church today think every Christian should seek his own personal Pentecost in order to speak in tongues. After all, if we want to get back to the kind of supernatural fruitfulness and effectiveness and power that we see in Acts, shouldn't we seek to prophesy over other people and tell them things that we could only know by special revelation and relationship to the Holy Spirit? 
The Pentecostal wing of global evangelicalism is the fastest growing part of today's church. Is that because they ordinarily experience the miraculous? Should miracles be ordinary in every church? I mean, maybe we're missing something here. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't think I've seen a miracle worked by any of you in this church. I, I haven't worked one. Is there something wrong with us? What are we doing wrong? In other words, after Pentecost, should we all be Pentecostals? That's a question I want to try to answer with our time remaining. I don't think we should. And I have a few reasons that are listed there on your handout. First, miracles in the Bible confirm revelation. Miracles confirm new revelation. Even in Scripture, miracles are not just happening willy-nilly all over the place. Miracles happen to confirm the truth of new revelation from God, the plagues of Egypt, the Exodus, Sinai and the law, the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Jesus' ministry is full of miracles precisely in order to confirm that he is in his own person the revelatory word of God, the incarnate word. Peter even calls Jesus in Acts 2.22 a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, the miracles, the signs, the wonders attested to who Jesus is and what God was saying to humanity through him. Attested. New revelation. Miracles happen through the apostles, for the same reason, to confirm the authority of their commission from Christ himself and the authenticity of their message about Jesus. Without new revelation from God, then, miracles lose their reason for being, which is to testify to the truth of new revelation from God. Once God's revelation to all mankind for all time was complete in history and scripture, as he intended it, the purpose of miracles ended. You have them recorded. You take it or leave it. This is God's word to you. B.B. Warfield of Old Princeton goes so far as to say that had any miracle perchance occurred beyond the apostolic age, they would be without significance, mere occurrences with no universal meaning. Because Christ is all in all, and all revelation and redemption alike are summed up in him, it would be inconceivable that either revelation or its accompanying signs should continue after the completion of that great revelation with its accrediting works in Christ. Christ is all and in all. What more do you need? You have the ultimate sign in his resurrection and ascension. Quit waiting for a miracle. You've already got one. You got a lot. Second, signs and wonders are unique to the apostles and their delegates, those whom they lay their hands on. Paul said, 2 Corinthians 12, I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You knew a true apostle by the signs he works. This is exactly how uh, Paul is distinguishing himself from false apostles, by the signs and wonders he himself worked, which confirmed the message he preached and the authority he had from the risen Christ himself. Yet those signs and wonders can be counterfeited. Paul said, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, by false apostles, deceitful workmen, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an, apostle, as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. That happens all the time. Mention Jesus' name, ask for money, work a so-called miracle. <sighs> Pharaoh's magicians made their staffs become snakes too by their secret arts. So false apostles can mimic apostolic miracles. Test the spirits. Third, Pentecost is programmatic for acts, not paradigmatic for Christians. Man, I wish I had invented that sentence. That's a beautiful sentence. I'm going to tell you what it means. There's a couple big words in there, but man, that's awesome. That's the language of Sinclair Ferguson. I like him. He says, the event of Pentecost is viewed in Acts as programmatic, like a program at an opera or a concert. It's going to tell you what's next. Rather than paradigmatic. It's not a paradigm for everybody else to mimic and follow. So the program or schedule of the book of Acts is the spread of the gospel by the power of the Spirit from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Jesus told the apostles, wait until they were clothed with power, then they their witness would be effective. They wait. They're clothed with power in Jerusalem. As the gospel breaks new ground in the concentric circles outside Jerusalem, the Spirit gives the gift of tongues to confirm his presence and power in those new gospel frontiers geographically and ethnically. That's why the only other places it happens is in Acts 8 with the Samaritan believers, Acts 10 with the Gentile Cornelius in Caesarea, and in Acts 19 with the Ephesian disciples. Ferguson says the events at Samaria and Caesarea, Acts 8 and 10 respectively, mark the second and third stages of the three decisive geographic points of advance in the spread of the kingdom of Christ outlined in Acts 1.8. That's why it happens. Ephesus was different only in that the disciples who intend to follow Jesus there were in between the times of, in their experience of promise and fulfillment. So Pentecost is not meant as a paradigm for us to seek and experience. It's meant as a program, as a bulletin for Acts. Second, or I guess fourth, miracles are extraordinary, not ordinary. B.B. Warfield noted that if miracles are to be common everyday occurrences, normal and not extraordinary, they cease to attract attention and lose their very reason for existence. If miracles are the law of the Christian life, they cease to serve their chief end. In other words, miracles are suspensions of natural law by definition. But if they become so common that you expect them as law, what are they? They're no longer what they used to be. They're no longer a suspension of natural law. So they're no longer special. So you don't know what to take from them. Fifth, extraordinary experience is not necessarily miraculous. There's all sorts of experiences that are extraordinary that are not yet miraculous in the biblical sense. Lots of inexplicable, rare, unlikely things happen that are yet still within the realm of natural law. Just because we cannot explain them doesn't mean they're necessarily miraculous in the biblical sense. And yet, Christian, just because something is extraordinary and still not miraculous does not mean that it's not an answer to prayer. It might very well be an answer to prayer. Just not a miraculous one. It's God-ordained, but it comes to you by his providence, not by his overruling of natural law, but by his bending of it to serve you.
Finally, Peter commands repentance and baptism, not tongues. Frederick Bruner is again helpful here. Rather than telling his inquirers to await the Holy Spirit in a second Pentecost event with wind, fire, and tongues, Peter offers Christian baptism. Peter teaches no one how to speak in tongues. The exterior forms of Pentecost, wind, fire, visions, tongues, leave. The essential content, the Spirit, remains. The initial Pentecost event did not institute replicas, Bruner says. It instituted Christian preaching and baptism. It is not little Pentecosts that are either here recorded or are in Acts intended to follow the one Pentecost. Baptism is the sure visible evidence taught in Acts of the reception of the forgiveness of sins with the coordinate gift of the Holy Spirit, end quote. So friends, I hope, that, I hope we've seen what Pentecost means this morning. It means that God has fulfilled his promises in the exaltation and proclamation of Jesus. It means we should all turn from our sins to trust in Christ more fully. It means we should identify with Christ in baptism and with his people in meaningful church membership and global mission. These, these are the priorities of Pentecost. Are they yours? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we have often sought confirmation, intimacy, knowledge in wrong places. We have sought blessing in the wrong means. So we pray, redirect us back to your word, both written and incarnate, for all the revelation and assurance we need. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.